0: Hi there, this is Rhiannon Hardingham from RH Reproductive Health. Histamine and estrogen have an intimate relationship physiologically, which is often responsible for a raft of seemingly unrelated symptoms from hives and migraines to anxiety and insomnia. And many common and clinically challenging patient presentations have histaminosis as a complicating factor, including PMS and PMDD. Join me for Bioceuticals Clinical Mastery, Histaminosis and Estrogen, Breaking the Cycle on September 14th and 21st. Over two online sessions, I'll lead you through the key clinical steps involved in identifying, assessing and managing female patients with histaminosis. Go to bioceuticals.com.au to reserve your place today. I'm really excited about this presentation. I know a lot of you are really interested in this topic and I really look forward to seeing you there.
1: Hi, and welcome to FX Medicine, where we bring you the latest in evidence-based, integrative, functional, and complementary medicine. FX Medicine acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia where we live and work, and their connections to land, sea, and community. We pay our respect to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. With us today is Dr. Joseph Firth, UK Research and Innovation Future Leaders Fellow at the University of Manchester. Dr Firth completed his PhD at the University of Manchester and has a bachelor's degree in psychology. He has published more than 200 peer-reviewed articles in international research journals, including some of the top-ranked medical journals in the world. Dr Firth has a strong interest in health behaviours, such as physical activity, diet and sleep, and its relationship to mental illness and brain health. In addition to this, he's undertaking research examining how digital technology can influence mental health. And these are some of the topics we'll be discussing with him today. Welcome to FX Medicine, Joe. Thanks for being with us today.
0: Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: I know that the, um, you know, certainly for me, the importance of health, health behaviors such as what we eat and how we sleep and how physically active we are and our social connections on our mental health is an area that I'm personally very passionate about. Uh, But unfortunately, some of these behaviours are often overlooked when we treat children and adults presenting with mental health problems such as depression and anxiety. And your published works on lifestyle psychiatry have shown just how important these behaviours are. But firstly, can you clarify what is lifestyle psychiatry?
0: Well, yes, lifestyle psychiatry, I think, is quite a new term that can mean different things to different researchers and different clinical people and, and academics. But basically, the idea is taking the principles of lifestyle medicine, which is a much um, longer-standing field with a um, you know a broad range of different evidences against against different health conditions, and looking at how the the evidence from lifestyle medicine can also apply to psychiatry and the treatment of mental health conditions beyond just physical health conditions. So typically, it always involves the um, traditional health behaviours like exercise nutrition, sleeping and things like that and how they relate to people's mental health. But then Mm -hmm. some people include other stuff in the umbrella term of of lifestyle. It could include um, things like nutrient supplementation. It could include things like uh, mindfulness or other like holistic therapies. So the the term can be quite broad, but it usually includes those core health behaviors
1: as well. Yeah, so certainly the diet, the exercise, the sleep. I know that they're the integral parts. And then I know there's obviously, you know, Research on smoking and even screen time, which I actually I wanted to talk about later in terms of screen time and technology. So, so who's using lifestyle psychiatry as a treatment approach?
0: Yeah, I think the um, acknowledgement that health behaviours impact on mental health as much as physical health is quite broad across most among clinicians that I interact with. Uh, mental health nurses, psychiatrists, and psychologists are all quite okay with the idea of things like exercise and nutrition being important for mm-hmm. mental health and important for the physical health of people with mental illness. But unfortunately, lifestyle psychiatry or, or lifestyle medicine is not well integrated into the mental health services. So even though often the clinicians working in the services and even the um, you know the patients being treated and the families and everybody kind of acknowledges that these things are important, they're not well integrated. The implementation of health behavior change interventions or lifestyle medicine in actual mental health care is sadly underutilized at the moment. So as much as we have all the evidence showing that lifestyle can make a difference, it's not widely used in the care services yet.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's certainly the case. I know that we're becoming more aware of the importance of diet and and exercise and, and sleep, but the key is trying to work out how to integrate it into current treatment models, and I know that you're in the UK, so is do you know whether mental health practitioners like your standard psychiatrists, do you know whether they're using dietary recommendations? Are they prescribing exercise as a treatment? Do you know whether that's happening yet?
0: Yeah, a lot of, a lot of them would do, I'd say, and with the context of our trials, you know, we get a lot of support when we're doing the studies on the different lifestyle interventions. It always is well accepted and, you know, well referred to by the psychiatrists. But the thing is, the mental health services in the UK are some of like the most overstretched and under-resourced services. That in day-to-day care, even those who are passionate about lifestyle medicine have, you know, very little time, uh, capacity, and resources to actually deliver any type of, say, you know, beyond just recommending a healthy diet and recommending exercise, which we know doesn't really make much of a difference to people's behaviours. There's no real resources in place to actually help the mental health care staff across all the different levels to actually refer to a program that works or to actually deliver a lifestyle intervention on a scale that would be needed to make serious change. So even, even those who are proponents of it even struggle to actually get it going on the scale that it needs to be.
1: So what about like when you do your research studies, um, who's the people implementing the, the actual treatments? Are they nurses or what, what background are they?
0: Generally, there's two things really. Number one is that we found from, from the evidence, a, a lot of my studies around the exercise stuff really and the fitness stuff. And when you look at the evidence around that, we find that the actual fitness and exercise recommendations or interventions are better received and better adhered to when we use fitness staff. It kind of sounds obvious, but when we use people from like mm-hmm. a fitness or exercise background to actually deliver the intervention rather than expecting yeah. the mental health staff to be responsible for delivering the exercise and fitness interventions. That is better than nothing, obviously, but far better than that is being able to actually include these fitness and exercise professionals. Like we have, you know, therapists for other aspects, occupational therapists and mental health care services or talking therapists. If we can include fitness therapists and physical therapists, the interventions delivered by those people are far Superior, and the same with, with other things like nutritional counselling would compare mm-hmm. obviously, from a dietitian than trying to upskill mental health staff. It's nice if you can do that, but there's a number of problems around expecting that to continue, you know, with the demands of the of clinical caseloads and then also just the up to date on the evidence and the motivation to actually deliver these interventions is much higher in people who are properly skilled and from those backgrounds. So we are always trying to include these physical health practitioners uh, for whatever intervention we're trying to increase the use of. We try to include those in the mental health care services mm-hmm. as, a member of, as a member of staff or at least at a point of referral such that they can deliver a really interesting intervention that gets people going and, and keeps the patients involved rather than just saying, oh, you should be exercising a bit more or should you be yeah. eating a bit better, like everybody's been told a million times and doesn't make any mm-hmm. difference if you get these guys in there who are actually um, passionate about it and, and really skillful and that's sort their of profession. As you can imagine, it goes a lot better. Yeah.
1: So with the research that you've done, is it mainly, I mean, is there a specific area that you've mainly done your research on? Is it, is it exercise? Is it dietary interventions? Is it nutraceuticals? Where's your research kind of mainly been focused on?
0: The vast majority of my actual clinical research has been focused around exercise interventions Excellent. in two yeah. ways. Number one, setting up exercise stuff actually in mental health care units so like exercise classes and fitness stuff on site for people in mental health rehabilitation and then number two setting up exercise referral schemes basically where people get referred from the mental health services to their local like community leisure centres where there's fitness staff on hand but we're also mental health champions connected with the services to kind of re- receive those referrals and get people into exercise and number three now what we're doing now is a whole programme of work around how we can make use of Digital technologies in order to increase the availability of lifestyle interventions in mental health care. So, we're setting up a number of things around like smoking cessation, online support stuff we're through apps for smoking cessation. We're going to be doing some diet and nutrition stuff. And um, right now we're setting up like a home fitness stuff that can be offered through the early intervention services for young people. It's like a live fitness class by a trainer who works, you know, within the service dedicated for the youth mental health services. And people can just log in from home, do their Zoom fitness session, do like a lifestyle Q&A with the fitness providers about, you know, other areas of lifestyle, what they should be eating, how they can stay active on a day-to-day basis. So it's like a brief fitness thing that people can join in with on a regular basis and then also get some get some personalized feedback and discussion around the lifestyle in like a small group setting because we found that would be quite popular so just to so really just making use of all this new digital tech to make lifestyle stuff a little bit more available you know a very cost friendly way across the mental health services mm-hmm.
1: and when you say you're digital so what's happening there is it a specific program that you're offering through the digital technology or is it is that what's happening?
0: Yeah, yeah, it will be. Yeah, we've been testing out a number of different approaches with the uh, with the service users, with the patients from the youth mental health services, and we've settled on one already for the smoking. We have a trial underway. And what mm-hmm. people really liked from the digital stuff is the sense of connection. You know, digital technologies by themselves are good and they can give people a lot of detailed feedback and advice, but really what, people, what the people that we've spoke to in the mental health services did to really value... Is the ones that really like bring people together, make use of digital technologies to form real people connections. So the smoking app that we used for an active trial, which was by far the most popular that we looked at, was the uh, was the Smoke Free app, um, which is in the UK and basically can connect people to live smoking support at any time of the day, and also do smoking clinics, which like does like a group setting for smoking cessation counselling. Um, so And it, it can give people, you know, if someone's having a craving or having a tough time, it can connect people to an actual smoking support advisor at 24-7, real person, not a robot, who can advise them. So oh, yeah. that seems to be very popular, but our trial's currently underway, so we don't know the results of that. And then same for the yeah. exercise stuff, tested out a number of different exercise apps, which people mostly liked the technologies of and appreciated the capabilities of, but we feel the the alternative of actually just using like a like an online group you know using like a zoom like a fitness session thing that can be delivered remotely seemed to be more popular in terms of people actually wanting to do it on a regular basis and bringing people together in that group setting so we're just setting up the trial for that now we've done a few practice sessions and stuff, that's done quite well.
1: So it's like a live exercise session. So somebody's like doing, a, say, an aerobics class at a particular time and then people are kind of logging in and, and doing the class together. Is that what's happening?
0: Yeah, exactly. It's going to be twice weekly, but then mm-hmm. it gets recorded as well. So people can watch that recording if they happen to miss it. There's some basic equipment involved. Everybody who's participating in the study gets just some bands, which are super cheap to buy, but you can do a, a lot of like, different exercises with these resistance bands. So we can post those out to people. Then they do the fitness stuff, uh, nice and steady, uh, but you know, quite upbeat. And then yeah. we do the um, like, give the people the opportunity for like a question and answer session afterwards, where they can just discuss other aspects of healthy living and lifestyle with the with the fitness trainers and, and with the group as well. You know, what's been working for people, just to make it feel like a, oh, nice. a cohort going through the fitness stuff together. So we're hoping. Obviously, the, the study is literally in the setup phases for that. So. We don't know how it goes, but we're hoping it'll go quite well. <laughs> we've seen it work in other yeah. contexts.
1: You also did the same with the smoking interventions. You did that through digital technology too? Yeah, we've got an
0: active trial in that area. Um, after settling on the Smoke Free app, we're looking at how people, if they actually do use it in the context of the trial, which aspects of the app people use the most, and then also, obviously, if it helps them quit smoking. If it, And then we check people's physical and mental health, um, just self-report before and after participating as well, just to see if it's having any signal effects on people's psychological well-being. And
1: these exercise and smoking interventions, are they done with people with any particular mental health problem?
0: Yeah, most of my research now is, in terms of the clinical research bit, is done through the early intervention services. So, quite a broad but also quite specific group of young people aged between say 14 to 35, so it's kind of like young uh, adolescents to young adults um, being treated for Psychotic disorders most of the time, but it's important to do a lot of research on that group because it's in those early phases of the treatment for mental health conditions when we see the biggest decline in people's physical health. Usually, unfortunately, by the, even in the early intervention services, by the time people have been treated there, they've been psychologically unwell for a long time, but their physical health is relatively intact. Whereas after mm-hmm. years of struggling with a severe mental health condition and also even the medications themselves, people's physical health goes really downhill to the point where it can be even difficult to expect them to be engaging with things like fitness interventions or or changing the diet and stuff after a long time. So it's important to try and reach people as early as possible in the course of mental health treatment in order to improve physical health outcomes.
1: And so you don't have any results yet?
0: Not from the digital stuff literally just started we got a big grant from the UKRI um, just before the pandemic kicked off and then we've just been in the setup phases it's called The fitness one just going through the ethics and everything now and then we're going to be doing some diet and nutrition things in the meantime what we've been doing before we can actually do the formal research is getting the feedback you know engaging the, the patients and the clinicians mm-hmm. and seeing what actually young people with mental health conditions actually want from digital interventions so we've run like a massive perspective gathering exercise online, got different opinions from about 600 young people, showing them different types of, you know, demo technologies and things like that and seeing what they think. Because ultimately we want something that can really be actually implemented in mental health care. So a lot of the discussions are around what will people actually continue to use to the clinicians? What will you guys be comfortable recommending? What do you guys think can actually continue to be integrated in day-to-day clinical care? It's easier for us to just, use the funding to set up a a trial and just pay people to participate and, you know, make it all really smooth and get a a nice study running. But then ultimately Mm -hmm. that's pointless. If as soon as the study ends, then the intervention dies away.
1: Yeah, that's fascinating. So it's really then looking at delivering the lifestyle components through digital technology. And obviously you're looking at kind of young people, but it'd be interesting to see how it would be a Kind of taken up by older age people, any plans to do some research in the with with that population?
0: yeah, for sure we're we with the younger group, and that's why we've been you know received the grant funding to do the initial experiments. and even right now, while we've been setting up these studies, the first questions we've been asked by the clinical teams who are helping us deliver this trial have been oh can we offer this to our older groups? can we offer this to the community mental health teams? can we You know, do this with it. Already, people are thinking of other ways to use these technologies. When we show them around it, it's well received and they're wanting already to start offering it through the wider group. So I could imagine how it would grow.
1: You know, the fact that you said that, uh, you know, delivering it live. So I wonder whether that's that social connections component, that that social support component, which is also important with regards to uh, any digital or any intervention that we do. So it's interesting that you ran it that way.
0: Yeah, I think so, Adrian. We've noticed that in the past, the the stuff that can kind of connect people to other people for lifestyle interventions just makes people a lot more interested and a lot more Mm. up for doing it long-term. People might like the idea of the more isolated interventions, but the the actual execution and the adherence over time goes so much better if people feel like they're part of a group or even just a connection to like an individual coach, just having... Other people involved makes people much more likely to stick at it over time and actually enjoy doing it as well, which is a big thing.
1: Yeah, are there any um, apps that are out there at the moment that you know have, may not have been researched, but anything that you think is useful that any practitioners that are listening today might be interested in using with their clients?
0: Yeah, well, we looked at a lot of different ones when we've been obviously testing them out, and the actually uh, for me, I think the the Nike the free Nike fitness app is actually really good, and that has different intensities of workouts, different styles actually in the app, and or you know, it has like fitness tracking, gives people individualised feedback on their progress, and you know, the type of feedback we will get, that's a decent one. Uh, whether p- patients we haven't tested it clinically or anything, so whether patients would stick with it over time, but it seems to have all the components of what would be a popular app in the uh, in any context just because it offers, you know, it's so easy to use and offers such a broad range of different things. I think that's, yeah. that's a good one.
1: Any smoking ones?
0: Yeah, the Smoke Free app is the one that we've settled on. Um, that's available freely through our region in the UK because the actual council have bought like a, a license for it. But that's the, there's a free version of the Smoke Free app that's available for anybody. I think internationally, it's just on the App Store. And if you have the um, subscription service, then it gives you access to the 24-7 smoking cessation support, which seems to be a really popular component of um, smoking apps. Otherwise, a lot of smoking apps just really boil down to telling you how long you've not been smoking for, you know, sending some little distractors or messages of support and things.
1: Okay, I'll get the details from you and we'll include it in our show notes so uh, so people can Yeah, and also
0: right now we're looking now for women's apps and and digital methods for actually improving people's nutrition or maybe giving them feedback or or access to ways to use digital technologies to... um, help people adopt healthier diets and improve their nutrition as well in the context of mental health care. Simple but effective things and maybe even connect people. And we're still in like the you know, the looking at the different options available phase for that, where we've kind of settled on the stuff for the fitness and smoking. So if anybody listening to the podcast has any suggestions, they can get in touch with me for things that we can look at around the using these digital technologies for nutritional means in the context of mental health care especially if there's any ideas out there you know we go as broad as possible initially get get feedback from everything that we can find so um, i'm open to suggestions from from anybody listening or yourself so we'll
1: definitely put it out there if any of our listeners know of any diet ones are in the process of developing one then uh, we'll link you up with them that's for sure
0: yeah, and sleep as well. Um, there's, there's the sleepier one getting widely used in the NHS. That's probably the best example of digital technologies having received uptake by the actual NHS in terms wow. of lifestyle medicine for mental health. So that's a fantastic example of how this type of research and how lifestyle medicine can actually become part of mental health care in a scalable way. It's been quite Uplifting to see it really making a difference i also
1: wanted to talk a bit about uh some of the work you've done in the area of nutrients and uh some you've written some fascinating or you've been you know lead author on some fascinating um review papers on nutrients for the treatment of different mental health conditions can you tell us a bit about that work
0: yeah, the actual body of evidence around nutrient supplementation as an adjunctive treatment for mental illness is something, going back just as long as all the exercise stuff and lifestyle medicine stuff, really, that's that's been like its own field developing in union alongside the lifestyle medicine. And there's, in fact, a lot more studies and RCTs especially around nutrient supplementation in mental health compared to, say, dietary interventions, which is interesting. To observe, and there's obviously a whole range of different nutrients that have been tested across the broad spectrum of mental health conditions. So it's a big body of research already.
1: Yeah. And so, with your paper that you published back in 2019, what was the strongest body of evidence for um, in terms of nutrients?
0: Oh, yeah, sure. Um, Well, the omega 3 supplementation is the most widely researched and has therefore also came to the forefront, of, from that review, as the you know having the strongest evidence available in terms of using adjunctive or omega threes in the treatment of major depression, I believe, and also some other mental health conditions that seems to be. But even though there's a number of RCTs showing you know quite positive beneficial effects from omega three supplementation, there's also you know a lot of null trials as well, and there's a lot of misunderstanding or lack of consensus on how like the actual mechanisms through which omega-3s can help to reduce depression and improve mental health some people think it's a direct result of the you know omega-3s themselves just in the in the body and in the brain some people think it could be reduced um reducing inflammation omega-3s are quite known to be able to reduce inflammation all over you know like neurophysiological hormonal pathways it's 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 an interesting one um Mm -hmm. And it could explain why there's some variation in the results that we see from studies. And if the further research really, rather than just testing omega-3s, could do with trying to figure out what is the actual biological component of omega-3s or what is the actual conditions, it might be that they work for certain groups of people and not for others. The variation between mental health conditions is so massive, even within a specific diagnosis. Um, We probably need to get a more fine-grained understanding of the conditions under which and for the people which these nutrients can actually be effective um, before really rolling it out on a massive scale or or anything like that or, or doing further research just to prove the efficacy. We don't really know all these things yet, despite there being such a big body of research on potential efficacy already indicated. So yeah, it'd be interesting to see how the research develops in, in that line as well.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think that's where obviously we're doing work and you know, even myself or, you know, do clinical trials on, on people with depression. But we do know that people, you know, with depression, it's you know, that label is it varies so much and some people sleep too much and some people don't sleep enough and some people's appetite is higher and some people's appetite is lower and some people present with inflammation and some people don't. So so yeah, I agree. I think the next thing is for us to really identify who it works for and how it works, and and we still need a lot more research around that. So so with um, the omega threes, yeah. do you know is it people low in omega threes do they do better, or we're not even at that point yet?
0: There's been some recent evidence to indicate the inflammation could actually make a difference, and some trials showing that anti-inflammatory medications obviously um, have higher um, antidepressant effects in people with high levels of inflammation. So you could imagine that being a not an easy way to stratify people but a first step but then also like what you just said I fully agree you have some patients that present with high inflammation and some that don't and then even within the Within that group, you have some people where the high inflammation seems related to the symptoms, and then some cases where it doesn't. So it's, it's so confusing <laughs> and yeah, so hard yeah, to pin down. But I guess the, the benefit of things like nutrient supplements and omega-3s is it's not necessarily like testing out different drugs and you don't know how it'll interact with other drugs. They are generally perceived to be you know, pretty safe and widely available and quite cheap to get hold of. So if people want to just try omega-3s and things, obviously alongside current medications. It's easier for it's easier for people to do so yeah. without as much risk, obviously, with their doctor's advice just to make sure it doesn't interact with anything. Um, it's quite easy for people to personalise themselves and see what works and what doesn't work in, in a simple way without as much risk as certain medications. But for sure, it's just so confusing to try and figure out what are the conditions or what even the ingredients of the omega-3s as well we have seen in the literature, yeah. that the ones with the highest levels of EPA in the, the higher doses of EPA rather than DHA, obviously the two main components of omega-3 fatty acids, the EPA ones seem seem to have greater beneficial effects on depressive symptoms as well, and greater reductions. And so that could be another thing as well um, worth considering. The actual constituents and the quality of the uh, omega-3 being, being used.
1: So high EPA um, and dosage-wise, given the safety profile with Omega-3s, higher EPA, is there a dose that generally kind of is has greatest efficacy?
0: I think it's um, – I think, I'm trying to remember now from the actual marinal season things, but I think it might be 2,000 milligrams per day of the high EPA formulas that were where we, where we saw the best effect. But I'd double-check yeah. that with the papers. It might yeah, even I be a little bit right. higher than that. Yeah, I think it was. So a different people have different. Um, some people have like gastrointestinal side effects and things some very high dose EPAs. So I, I guess with any with any dosage strategy, before moving up to like the upper limit dose, you're better off tri- mm-hmm. trialing out a very small amount first. Even in the trials, I think they start with a like a titrated dose methodology. So start people on 500 milligram a day or something like that, and just check that everybody's getting on okay before moving up to those higher dosage ranges.
1: Yeah, and I think people need to be aware too that if you're going to use omega-3s, it's not going to work quickly. So it's something that you can use. I mean, obviously your research has indicated that as an adjunct treatment, omega-3s um, have efficacy. So but for people to just continue taking it over a longer term rather than four weeks and expect uh, dramatic improvements in their mood, that's not going to happen.
0: Yeah, and there's even other nutrients that are emerging as well. So I guess different people could benefit from different types of nutrients. It's not all about omega-3s the methyl folate which is the really high dose B vitamin stuff seems to seems to have positive effects under some conditions especially in people with low levels of, of folate vitamin B9 and also the N-acetyl-cysteine and the other antioxidant are also showing some efficacy again in different conditions it's, the effects are sometimes null and the effects are sometimes positive and the re- the research is really just, just beginning to try and figure out why is it sometimes working and why is it sometimes not so It'll be interesting to see how the field develops and actually gets a more fine grained understanding of how the different nutrients can influence different mental health conditions in different people.
1: All right. So, we've got then obviously you've mentioned the lifestyle psychiatry, the, you know, obviously there's the dietary interventions, there's the exercise. We know that there's a strong link between smoking and, and mental health. And obviously, smoking cessation could be a really important component to any intervention. You've mentioned sleep. There's obviously uh, nutraceuticals that, that we've kind of mentioned and I know that your work's mainly been in, in nutraceuticals. I've, my work's mainly been in the, the herbal side of things and there's some different herbal options that um, people could kind of look at um, as, as a component to, I suppose, lifestyle psychiatry too. So have you done much research on things like screen time? Is that your area where you're looking at kind of social media and, and that type of stuff on on mental health?
0: Yeah, we've done a little bit of research around that and particularly around screen time in the context of sedentary behaviour in young people and how that might impact on mental health as a as a whole field of research emerging in that field. And then also around things like social media and just you, you know, the constant use of online technologies, how that might interact with even cognition and brain development and mental health is a is another interest of mine. Um obviously we don't really have the long-term research like we do for nutrients or exercise on those types of things because they've not been around long enough to do enough studies and then also you know, the length of time that young people have been exposed to these. We've not seen the long-term effects of things like that either in in cohort studies or whatever. Like we know, for instance, exercise reduces the risk of developing depression over the life course. We haven't actually had a chance to conduct studies that look at how if internet exposure or social media increases or reduces the risk of depression over the life course just because nobody's lived out the, you know, there's not the data from the life course studies yet. So it'll be interesting to see how that field develops. Um, Already, though, there is quite strong evidence that high amounts of screen time, um, especially in the context of sedentary behaviour, is detrimental for physical health and mental health in young people. So you've seen guidelines from, like, the World Health Organization trying to dissuade against that and trying to reduce the amount of sedentary screen time that young people are engaging in. I mean, in some ways, it's common sense. People say, oh, well, obviously. But then in other words, I'd say, well, everyone's saying it's obvious, but what is anybody actually actually doing about it in health policy or in health interventions, public health interventions? Everybody's saying it's so obvious that that's not good for people. Why is there literally almost zero efforts to do anything but other than perpetuate the amount of screen time yeah, exactly. in young people. So it's um, it's definitely worth looking at more and really getting to, getting to how we can make a difference. So yeah, I think that's a really interesting area and something that will become increasingly important as we continue to see the wide-scale adoption and basically constant usage of these technologies and then things like social media whether they're a force for good or a force for bad in young people a lot of young people with mental illness um, even the groups that I work with report about how social media has had a detrimental effect on their mental health and that might only apply to the specific individuals but still for sure there's a lot of examples of where people have been very seriously affected by the by the consequences of things that have happened entirely online, but then has had a really massive impact on their day to day mental health and well being and, and functioning, um, yeah, as well. So, um, yeah, Absolutely. understanding how things like that, but then uh, equally, it's also good. You know, we have seeing a lot of interventions now making use of social media to bring people together. So, mm. yeah,
1: interesting. So, it's got a good side and a dark side, too, potentially.
0: Yes, yeah, exactly.
1: Now, the one thing I wanted to bring up, I recall reading just some of your work on some of the papers you had authored, looking at the relationship between grip strength and mental health. And yeah. so there was kind of research yeah. showing that a better grip strength is associated with the reduced risk of suicide and improved cognition and greater hippocampal volume. What's going on there?
0: Yeah, so we've done a whole broad range of research. And more than those, even since my research on the subject, looking at how people with higher levels of maximal grip strength which is literally just measured using like a hand grip dynamometer yeah. most people will have seen these but they kind of imagine what it's like and it's just a thing that you squeeze really hard and it just gives you a, an, an output in kilos of how, how strong your grip is and then when we look at that in the epidemiological study, we give each person a score which accounts for their you know other things that make a big difference to grip strength like your age and your body size and your gender or sex um, things that like. Relate to it, and then like the people's average pound for pound scores, so to speak, really relate to a whole range of mental health outcomes, of uh, physical health outcomes, and then also even of brain and, and cognition outcomes. Now, it's not that <laughs> it's not that grip strength itself is uh, improving people's mental health or cognition. It's not like somebody. Could oh, I just went to the shop and bought one problem. of those
1: uh, <laughs> hand grip exercises. I thought it was going to increase my brain size. That's not going to happen.
0: Boost your brain up by just getting really strong grip. Yeah, strong forearms. when, yeah, when you shake people's hands. <laughs> I don't think <laughs> I don't think that can, it, It's just that it, it's a really easy way to get down moment to get a, a, an idea of someone's overall muscular fitness. Just like we'd use, you know, like respiratory tests or like a basic fitness tests to get an idea of somebody's cardiorespiratory fitness. And we already know that cardiorespiratory fitness relates to a range of different physical and mental health outcomes. And we know that by increasing our cardiorespiratory fitness, we can increase our mental health. Obviously, we increase our physical health. We can increase our brain health. There's a whole body of research looking at all, and even the World Health Organization recommends that improving cardiorespiratory fitness you know, will improve our mental health and brain health in mm-hmm. people and older people. So that's widely accepted. But now this this research, really about the grip strength stuff. The grip, the grip, the grip itself is just a marker of someone's overall muscular fitness. So you've got to think of it in that term. Because other tests of muscular fitness are too much influenced by people that So if you get, so you think, oh well, bench press would be a better test of someone's muscular strength. Not necessarily, because then the people do do best just those who practice most most bench press. You know what I mean? So the other tests are kind of too influenced, even though it's such a seems like such a small test. It's a good one because it's not too influenced by what people have been practicing. So um, everyone's used to gripping something quite hard. And you get an idea from that. So it, it, really the evidence is signaling that just as much as improving our carrier respiratory fitness might be good for our mental health and physical health, equally improving people's muscular fitness and muscular strength might be really good for mental health and physical health. Now, there is some studies emerging of resistance training studies that have not used fitness training, uh, not used cardio respiratory fitness training, not done cycling or running, I forgot all that and just used weight training. And they have shown some improvements in mental health and physical health, but the body of research is much more nascent compared to the, you know, the obviously with a lot of exercise studies focus on yeah. cardio, cardio exercises. That's where the evidence really lies. That's what it speaks to at the moment. But it'd be interesting. We've, we've seen such strong relationships between muscular strength, uh, even independently of people's fitness. Mm-hmm that this field can be um something that develops and present new options and new recommendations so people don't feel like they hate you know going for a run or going for a cycle they can Mm -hmm. just easily do some strengthening exercises and get similar benefits for mental health
1: okay i'm a bit disappointed actually i've got the uh dynamometer at the office and i did a competition with my son the other day and uh I beat him, so I told him I must have a bigger hippocampus, a bigger brain than he does, but uh, I won't tell him the truth anymore. All right. All right. Well, that's great. I mean, you've, look, thank you very much for all the information that you've given us today, you know, all the important insights into how lifestyle psychiatry can be used to improve current treatments for mental health problems and how lifestyle psychiatry, we need to start thinking about, you know, the use of digital technology in terms of how we present it and maybe that's a new fascinating area of, of research that you're doing and then particularly we could potentially use it for uh, with our clients to help improve outcomes with them and deliver different components. You know, I'm just thinking now I, I see clients as a clinical psychologist and I could do the psychology component but I could potentially get them to do an exercise treatment through some digital technology, which may then be used as an adjunct to the work that I'm doing. So I'm really looking forward to the research that you're doing and interested in the results when they come out. So any ideas when you're going to finish?
0: It's actually a seven-year program of research that we've been funded for because, uh, mm-hmm. the, you know, the UKRI are really keen on, on looking at how we can use digital. We've got to accept that all this digital stuff is here to stay. So if we can find some good ways for our societies mm-hmm. and our mental health services to actually benefit from it, then, it, you know, obviously a big positive. So it's a long program of research, but we'll have results coming out on the preliminary stuff, it's, it's, especially in terms of preferences and what people might like to engage with most. Mm-hmm. Pretty soon, within the next twelve months, there'll be some some papers That's coming right. out of our group um, showing what what can be implemented. And like the feasibility stuff will be emerging straight away, and then definitive results across the different health behaviours first of all for the smoking stuff, and then for the exercise stuff and nutrition stuff will be coming out over time, a little bit further down the line. Hopefully, all being well, as long as we don't have another shutdown or another pandemic, and cross nothing is that the research can carry on now and everything can. Move move along as planned.
1: Well, I'm certainly looking forward to reading more of your published works in the in the future. And I'm an avid reader of, of your work, and uh, I recommend for practitioners to to certainly check out some of the published works that you've done and some of the brilliant review papers that you've you've published in in very high impact journals, which is brilliant because then that allows it to to really kind of reach mainstream psychiatry, which is really important for us in terms of the, us promoting lifestyle psychiatry. So thank you very much, Joe.
0: Well, thanks a lot, Adrian. That's very kind of you to say. Very nice to hear, and I'm really glad to um, you know get some positive feedback on our, our research. It really does mean a lot when we hear back from um, clinicians or people promoting the research in the in the real world, so to speak. Because sometimes it can feel like it's just a bit of a you know an echo chamber of, of academic papers. But then when you hear about it being having a positive impact, it's really really nice indeed and makes it all seem worthwhile. So thanks for saying that. It means a lot.
1: No, thank you. Keep it up. All right. So thank you everyone for listening today. Don't forget that you can find all the show notes, transcripts, and other resources from today's episode on the FX Medicine website. I'm Dr. Adrian Lopresti, and thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only, and it is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment.